Section 13 of The Bachelor's Club by Israel Zangwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 A Novel Advertisement. The President had fallen asleep in his official armchair, and Aurority was saving my presence alone. The other members had gone up to the square to study the accuracy of the archaeological details of the new classical ballet. Aurority did not know I was in the room, for, as he seemed engrossed in thought, I did not venture to disturb him. McGillicuddy snored steadily. Aurority was seated in front of the one writing-table of which the club could boast, though it didn't, for the table was a plain mahogany thing, studded with black spots of ink which ought to have been in a usually parched pewter inkstand. The pens were generally cross and spluttering. At other times they were absent. I saw at once that Aurority had got a hold of a bad pen by the way his brow was puckered. At last he scribbled something in large letters. I could tell that by the wide sweep of his pen. By this time I was bending over him, but in spite of all my efforts not to disturb him, the intense sympathy I felt for him seemed to subtly communicate itself to him, and to make him aware, by some sacred psychical an irreverent world will learn to admit some day, of my proximity. In his delight at my unexpected presence, he at once abandoned whatever he was doing, and, covering his writing with a large sheet of blotting paper, immediately turned his whole attention to me. "'Thought you were Nero?' he said affably. "'I thought you were,' I said amiably. "'No,' he replied. "'I have something to think about.' While he was talking, his hand idly strayed under the blotting paper, unconsciously drew out the sheet of paper, and mechanically placed it in his pocket. "'But what keeps you away?' he went on. "'I can't stand ballets,' I replied. "'They involve too much mental exertion. The effort to invent a plot for them is too trying.' "'Ah, invention of a plot. There is a difficulty.' "'But it is not the worst, not the worst,' he sighed. "'No, there is a music to listen to,' I said. "'Music be blowed,' Aurority replied, as if deciding between wind instruments and a string band. "'I'm not talking of ballets, but of my books.' "'Your books? Oh, yes, they are the worst,' I admitted cheerfully. "'Oh, I don't mind your saying that,' said Aurority good-humouredly. "'Because you at least read them. "'I have never seen Aurority in a real live passion.' The nearest approach to that state he ever exhibits is when he is taken for an Irishman. He sternly insists that he is not one. He was born, it is true, in County Cork, but as the baby was rocked on the cradle of the deep within a fortnight of its birthday, and the boy lived for ten years in Tripoli before finally settling down in Holborn, the man fails to understand how an Irish infant can be construed into an Irish man. When reminded that the child is the father of the man, he retorts that this only proves that the child, his father, was an Irishman. In spite of all temptations to be logically genealogical, he remains a cockney, and glories in his country. Nevertheless, every fresh man he meets makes the old mistake. I fancy it is because he speaks without the slightest trace of brogue. When a man is named Aurority, he cannot afford to do this, People think that he is only posing as a cockney. If he would only learn some broguish words, such as Yes, Avik, Spalpin, Akushla, Omar Haun, and Kayed Mele Falsha, 
I should myself feel less strange with him. Not that I care two straws whether he was born in Cork or Cincinnati. Only a man owes a certain duty to his neighbors when he is called Aurority. For the rest, Aurority was tall and thin and ruddy-whiskered, and wore spectacles and a high hat. His mutton-chops were so sanguineous that they seemed slightly underdone. His expression was nervous. He always had the air of awaiting the next man going to twit him with the secret of his birth. I knew that he would not be angry at my chafing his book so long as I left his nationality alone. I object to being classed among brilliant Irishmen of letters, he once informed me plumply. The constant irritation added to his constitutional melancholy. You at least read my books, said Rorty again. It was evidently a sore topic. Look here. He drew out a scrap of newspaper mounted on the well-known brown background of a popular press-cutting agency. Read this, he said. I read it. From the Dissenter's World, July 5th. A Summer Ideal Mr. O'Rorty's practiced hand is seen to advantage in this pretty pastoral story of an idle summer. The love scenes are exquisite in their union of purity and passion, while the descriptions of scenery are charming and recall Ruskin in his happiest moments. The tender grace of a holiday that is dead lives again in these felicitous silhouettes. A summer ideal may be safely recommended to parents and guardians. Though the author is an Irishman, there is no theological bias in this simple ideal, which may be introduced without fear into the most Protestant families. Aurority ground his teeth as I returned the critique. I knew why. It was not only the allusion to his race that galled him. In saying that I read his books, Aurority did me an injustice. Still, I did skim them, and I had gleaned sufficient of a summer ideal to know that it was a terribly ironical title and that the whole of the sordid, tragic comedy centered around Camberwall Green. "'Well, and what do you say of this criticism?' he said grimly. "'It is too bad,' I replied. "'Yes,' he said despondently. "'It'll sell some copies. The paper has an immense circulation all over the country among families that really buy books, especially those bad books that are called good books.' "'What an ass the man must be!' I exclaimed. "'He's not an ass,' he retorted indignantly. "'He's my bitterest friend.' "'Friend or no friend, he must be an ass to write like this "'about one of the most brutally realistic stories of modern times.' "'He's not an ass,' he repeated. "'He simply didn't read the book.' "'Oh, then he is certainly not an ass,' I admitted. "'But an ingenious deducer of contents from title. "'It's an economical way of reviewing. "'But you are bound to go and put your foot in it one day, by a fluke.' "'Yes, but I must say he isn't entirely to blame,' said Aurority. "'It's my publisher's fault, partly.' "'Your publisher?' "'Yes, he will allow the sheets to be bound in such a way "'that you have to cut the sides to skim the book. "'Parker, that's his name, doesn't mind running his eye along two pages "'connected at the top, but when their union is perpendicular, "'the thing is impossible.' "'But why doesn't he cut the leaves?' "'What?' and spoil the market value of the book. Surely you know that reviewing is the least paying form of journalism, and that no man with brains would do it if it were not for the prerequisites. But for the sale of unread books, criticism in this country would become a lost art. No, Parker's intentions were admirable. 
he saw a summer idea lying about in the dissenter's world office, and he saw my name on the thing. So, of course, he asked the editor to let him do it. And he has gone and done it, I said. Well, never mind. The parents and guardians who buy your book for their girls will never know their fearful mistake. The girls will never tell them. They will— Hush! interrupted Rorty. What's that? We listened to the sudden silence that had caught the novelist's acute ear. It was McGillicuddy, not snoring. We waited anxiously. The president took up his nasal theme again, and we resumed our conversation. Aurority did not care for everybody to know that he was a celebrated Aurority. He was very sensitive on this point, and knowing that people will always peep behind pen names, he had hit upon the happy idea of effectually concealing himself by writing under his real name. I was the only member of the club to whom the secret was open. Like most of us, Aurority had to live. If he had not swallowed some of his convictions, he would have nothing to eat. Bitter experience had taught him that the British public will not read novels without a love interest. And if there was one thing in this world in which Aurority did not believe, there was nothing in any other world in which he did. It was love. Having to write true-till-death moonlight scenes fretted him not only as a man but as a bachelor. His only consolation was that their pathos afforded him so much amusement. But McGillicuddy on his sublime snow-clad mountain peak of bachelordom had little sympathy with the frailties of those that groped in the valley. That was why Aurority was in such trepidation on hearing the president cease to snore. The steward, who was behind the bar listening, we never regarded him as an obstacle to confidential conversation. He was not a human being like ourselves. He was a married man. Next to the inaccurate statement as to my nationality, what roused me most in this notice, went on Aurority, is the eulogium of my descriptions of scenery. As a matter of fact, there was not one single description of scenery in the book. Scenery was always my weak point. I can no more paint a landscape than a royal academician. I have sometimes stolen a meadow from Ruskin, and I have several skies strongly tinged with black. Most of my flowers are picked from the lady novelist's back gardens, while I get my birds from Richard Jeffreys. Aurority began to get quite doleful in tone. Don't be so down in the mouth about it, old fellow, I said. Nobody knows. Yes, but what of my own conscience? Besides, my wholesale depredations are bound to be brought to light some day. And then there's my antique furniture. I've always got that at Oedas. But now the critics are beginning to say that her Louise Chintz boudoirs are a fraud, and her cinquecento medallions—I fancy they are medallions—are coined at the mint of her imagination. It's a nice thing when your supporters give way under you in this fashion, and your antique easy-chair collapses and leaves you on the floor. Then, look what dreadful suspicions it brings into your mind. Suppose your lady novelist botany is ghastly in position, and you're left up a tree— and you don't even know the name of the tree. How if your chiffances sing in England, or your nightingales perform in London during the season of their foreign provincial tours? How if your artichoke blooms in autumn, and your chrysanthemum chortles in the spring? How if— Good heavens! I interrupted with a cry of pain. What is this? While Rorty was speaking, I unconsciously taken up the blotting paper. There were heavy black marks on it. Practice has made me able to read writing backwards or upside down as quickly as forwards or normally. Aurority's face turned the color of a sheet of notepaper, 
of the pink variety. "'What is this?' I replied sternly as I pointed with my finger to those ghastly incriminating stains upon the pure, fluffy surface of the blotting paper. "'Nothing,' he stammered. "'Aurority,' I said with a word of reproach in my tremulous tones. "'On your honour as an Englishman, draw your own conclusions,' he replied, visibly softened. "'There's no deduction necessary. The conclusion is on the premises.' I observed sadly, reading aloud the infamous inscription, "'Wanted a wife.' "'Yes, I'm advertising for a wife,' he replied apologetically, and with a meek pathos that went to my heart. "'I can stand the strain no longer. I was just about to draw up the advertisement when you interrupted me.' "'But how? Why?' I inquired wildly. "'I've told you,' he said, snatching the paper from me and rising in excitement. "'Birds, bees, and fishes!' "'Was his mind wandering? "'Birds, beasts, and fishes? "'What odd schoolboy chords were struck by the phrase? "'Are you making a game of marriage?' I said. "'Oh, no, 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 I'm serious. "'I want birds, beasts, fishes, flowers, trees, furniture, bric-a-brac, "'and a thousand odds and ends. "'I must have them. "'I must have them, I tell you.' "'His voice rose to a maniacal scream.' I grew seriously alarmed. Coming on top of his wish to marry, language like this seemed to clinch the evidence of his insanity. Was Foxen's monomania epidemic? Hush, you'll disturb McCullicuddy's snoring, I said softly. Cannot you get all these things as a bachelor? Impossible. Have I not already explained to you how my literary life has been one long fraud? No, I must have someone to supplement me to supply all these ingredients in the novel which Aurority lacks. Beasts, birds, fishes, flowers. Spare me the catalogue, I cried severely. I understand. I knew you would, he returned, a slight misapprehension of my meaning, bringing a grateful look into his worried eyes. You see, to a cockney like myself, nature is utterly unknown. I lack that rural education, without which the modern novelist has no chance. It was all very well for a Dr. Johnson to say, "'Sir, let us take a walk down Fleet Street.' In his day nature had not been invented. There were certain stock adjectives which he had to get up. Azure sky, russet leaves, fairly cloud, translucent brook. Once you knew these, merry couples that went together were invariably as Homer's Juno with her oxide cavalier. You were set up as a writer.' That long catalogue of a poet's stock and trade which convinced Resolus that it was useless for him to apprentice himself to the muse was a mere flight of Johnson's imagination, intended to crack up the calling to which he was then an acknowledged master. Today it is a sober reality and is even more necessary for the novelist than for the poet, who can always veil himself in the obscurities of misty magnificence. Ah, it was a bad day for the writers when those ancient couples were divorced when for the marriages made in the classics were substituted for the laxer reliances of individual preference, and for the good old permanence of conjoint relation, haphazard and transient associations of modern free selection. There's a flux and chaos of conjunctions at best, and the looser literature of the French decadence it leads to the most extravagant matches of substances and epithets. There is no adjective so degraded that it may not hope to mate with the most proper of nouns. No noun so common that it may not find itself in at least temporary association with the most aristocratic of adjectives. 
Nay, so far as this disarrangement of epithets has gone, that I have known unprincipled writers wed words that belong to different castes and talk of strawberry-coloured symphonies and symphonic strawberries. He paused for want of breath, and I fetched him a pick-me-up. Where was I? he asked when he had gulped it down. Symphonic strawberries, I observed, but he had lost the thread. Well, anyhow, as I was saying, the modern novelist has a hard time of it. He is expected to know all things in heaven and earth and in waters beneath the earth. The miserable impostors who were first in the field went and corrupted the reading public by showering down omniscience from a cornucopia. Of course it was all faked. They crammed up as much about hunting and shooting and fishing and burgling and will-making and gardening and painting and sailing and climbing and banking and bee-caping. As much dialect, slang, idiom, proverb, local color, history, tradition, and superstition as was wanting for each book. And before the book had got to the press it was all clean wiped off their memories, which had reverted their original omniscience. Excuse any eulogism, but the language wants the word badly. By this sort of behavior the beggars have set up a standard which is simply unattainable by an honest man, not to mention they have snapped up all the best things of their successors. Analyze the average modern novel, what do you find? I made no effort to find anything, but he struggled with his waistcoat pocket and produced a scrap of paper from which he read aloud. Scenery, including botany, fifteen per cent. Journeys, foreign phrases, manners and customs, eleven per cent. Birds, beasts, and fishes, ten per cent. Scientific, musical, artistic, historical, and literary allusions or quotations, ten per cent. Descriptions, address, ten per cent. Theologian ethics, new, ten per cent. Plot, ten per cent. Ordinary natural dialogue, eight per cent. Grammatical and other blunders, six per cent. Portraits of hero and heroine, four per cent. Character drawing, two per cent. Wit and humor, point not not eight per cent. Unanalyzable residua, three point nine nine two per cent. Total, three volumes, one hundred per cent. I was about to dispute the accuracy of this discomposition, but he went on. This analysis is at once the cause and excuse of my marriage. Once I had arrived at these results, I felt that I was a doomed man. You will perceive that nearly half a volume of a moderate novel must be composed of scenery, in addition to my being unable to tell an oak from an acorn, or a gentian bush from a gillyflower, or a field of oats from a gorse-clad common, or an elder from Susanna. I am colour-blind. Moreover, I have no interest in the sunset, and I am never up light enough to witness the sunrise. The sight of the sea is sickening to me as if I were in it but people can see to rave over in a magnified wash-hand basin I have never been able to understand. You smile. You remember my much-praised apostrophe to the ocean and betwixt the gloaming and the nether sea. I have no wish to disguise from you the pricks of conscience, but I must live. I tell my conscience so, and point out that if I were to die it would perish too. To keep my conscience alive I steal. <laughs> steal? I echoed. Steal what? "'Haven't I told you? Trees, flowers, sunsets, birds, beasts. "'It's all fish that comes into my net,' said Aurority. "'What can a poor cockney do? Take the second item. "'I'd recognize a horse, a dog, a sheep, a mackerel, a cow, a cock, "'an elephant, an earthworm, a sparrow, a donkey, a butterfly, 
an eel, and a baby, and a few other animals. But even with dogs I can't tell a dash-hound from a poodle, though I give my old maid's poodles and arrows dash-hounds. I know the Scotch terrier is the same fore and aft, but that is only because of Bright's famous comparison of it to the fourth party. Illusions I can manage fairly well with the help of encyclopedias. I dip at random in omniscience and garnish my dialogue with whatever comes up. I make pot-shots at a volume of poems and an ornament of my chapters with the spoils. As for the dress, I'm hopelessly lost. These superficial details are infinitely wearisome to me. In real life, my eye goes straight for the psychological essence of a situation, and I have a soul above buttons. Unfortunately, the soul of the British public is beneath them, and sometimes I feel that there's something in frocks after all. When I create a nice errand, I don't like the girl to dress doubtily. It spoils a charm. When all is said, she's my own child, and I don't want her to look cocky and blame the old man. I'm not stingy. I want her to dress as magnificently as possible. But my own ignorance sets up sumptuary laws, and the poor thing comes off but scantily. I don't know what to put on her. Muslin, silks, and a sealskin jacket. My wardrobe contains little else. In the end, I'm reduced to stealing from the fashion plates, and Myra alone knows what a mull I make of it, for you see I can only use the descriptions but warily. The nomenclature has grown so beastly technical that I am afraid to venture. I can't tell a description of a costume from a dinner menu. What gold galloon, or blue brooch, or jet passementary, or basque, or toivador hats, or silk lis, or mar or pink chiffon, or philocell, or begelaine, or festooned skirts, maybe. I haven't the faintest idea, but all my heroines wear them and look natty in them. I can only hope that they are not indecent, but I can't expect immunity forever. Some day I shall introduce a half-clad virgin to a respectable dinner party, and the book will sell by tens of thousands. His tones trembled sadly into silence. I could offer him but cold comfort. He went on. I must learn these words if I wish to avoid popularity. There's no such word as fallet in the dictionary of the male novelist, but he has got to admit it. Fallet is becoming very prevalent. I see it in all the ladies' letters. Are my girls to be out of the fashion? No, it shall never be. I will do my duty by them. Oh, if I knew more of my girls in their lives. They say Dickens detected George Eliot was a woman by the way Hetty Sorrell combed her hair. How am I to know how ladies comb their hair? The novelist must needs be a peeping Tom, and if he is, he's sent to the Coventry. In journeys, etc., I am so-and-so. My first success, as you know, was due to my infantile recollections of Tripoli, and the happy title of my first-born three-decker, Tripoli Triplets. You remember Tripoli carried me successfully through my second novel, and through my third in which the relics of Tripoli's recollections were ashed up and located in Patagonia, but my fourth, in which the foreign flavor was replaced by the scent of English hay, and the heliotrope of the lady novelist was substituted for the palms of pomegranates of Barbary, was only a mild success. And now this last book, a summer ideal, in which I left off shamming and fell back upon the cockney scenes and people I really know, is a regular frost, as you might expect of an English summer, the things I'm really good in, plot, character drawing, real human dialogue, and unanalyzable residua, I reminded him. And unanalyzable residua, 
form only twenty-eight per cent of a compound I have to turn out from my Holborn laboratory. I have tried to do it right. I've done my best to learn the difference between maiden hair fern and magawizzle. It's no use going to a country unless you have somebody skilled in plant law with you, and there are very few real savants in those branches, I can tell you. You ought to have gone walking with Fogson before he got engaged. What nonsense! He only knew the scientific names, not the real names. He knew a vegetable I gave him one day he was dining with me was a Mycoperskium esculentum, but was surprised to learn it was a tomato. I spent a whole day in Kew Gardens, where the trees were obliging enough to grow labelled, and I plucked a leaf from every tree and shrub and scratched his name on the back. Leaving the gardens, I noticed a notice-board which informed me I was liable to prosecution if caught. I was too busy boiling down a classical botanical treatise into an edition for the use of schools to attend to my treasuries for some months. When I did, they were a heap of withered leaves, like the fable fairy gold, so perished my dream of knowledge. Can you wonder, then, that I must either marry or give up writing altogether and turn my hand to something useful? I concluded. But where does the necessity of marriage come in? You want a collaborator, not a wife. I want a wife, not a collaborator. I want someone to share the work, not the money or the reputation. Come, help me drop the advertisement. Very well, I said resignedly. Poor McGillicuddy snored on, in blissful unconsciousness of the coming blow. Wanted a wife, wrote Aurority again, in the boldest of letters, as if to give himself courage. Of course, he said, pausing, there are many other reasons why I should marry. You see, it is now some six years since I set up in London as a genius. I have failed. It is time I should now settle on into a steady popularity. Perhaps, too, when I have made all the money I want, I may get the reputation of genius after all by neglecting my wife. If I have none to neglect, this avenue of recognition is necessarily closed to me. Moreover, marriage itself is considerable fillip to a man's reputation. You are bound to get pars in the papers. It is an immense advertisement. Besides, your readers like it. They are knit to you by fresh ties and discovering that romance is a reality with you, that you do not believe that the honeymoon is made of green cheese. Many a declining novelist has acquired a fresh lease of popularity by marriage. The wedding bells, which usher his characters into nirvana of the Phoenix, are to the novelist but the joy bells of the paglogenesis. I fetched him another pick-me-up, and he resumed the concoction of his matrimonial advertisement, keeping up commentatorial monologue as he went along. Wanted. A wife. Musical. Literary. Artistic. Scientific. The more she knows about sonatas and B-flat, and the precise emotion that a soulful heroine must feel under the prelude of Parsifal, the better. I have always been in danger of letting my people poke her to masses in D minor, she will also save me from misregulating the movements of the planets or confounding Botticelli with a kind of urdy-gurdy, much travelled in England and the universe generally. That's for the foreign department. I don't know whether a Devonshire lass is a blonde or brunette, but there's nothing like bringing local colour to the cheek of the young person. Polyglot, that's to keep the Italian and the French and the German in order. Thoroughly familiar with dressmaking, tailoring, kitchen gardening, botany, mineralogy, birds, beasts, and fishes, antique and modern furniture, prize fighting, manners and customs of good and bad society, 
and every other variety of useful or useless information. Why not put an encyclopedia in a petticoat? It's shorter. A petticoat may be shorter, but at the cost of lucidity. Well, I say universal provider and a genius. A genius not objected to, added Aurority. Thank you. Great imaginative power, a recommendation. There is no harm in her being good at plots and character drawing while she is about it. Not the least, I assented. Is there anything else? he asked, rereading it critically. Cookery? Cookery, thank you. But geniuses can't cook. Theoretical only. Thank you. Anything else? Beautiful? Oh, of course. I can study her attitudes and toilets without impertinence or cribbing from the lady novelist. She shall sit to me, order herself as heroine. Beautiful. Anything else? We paused and racked our brains for five minutes. McGillicuddy snored on. The steward was all the ears. Fool! cried Aurority at last, smacking his brow, and he solemnly added, No Irish need apply. A loud, suspicious gurgle burst from the steward's lips. It sounded like a strangled laugh. McGillicuddy awoke and yawned. The next moment he learnt the news, and all was dark to him again. Aurority did not return from his honeymoon in Tripoli for a year. Then he came back to England and paid the expenses of the publication, Goeth Down as a Gossamer, a three-volume novel by Mrs. Aurority, Pansy Sinclair. He had married a lady novelist. He wrote no more himself. He was pumped out, and his wife kept whatever knowledge and creative power she possessed for her own works. It was my own fault, Paul, he said, on the only occasion I met him, for he shunned the abodes of men and bachelors. I forgot to put that limitation in the advertisement. But did she really claim to fulfill all the other conditions? She did. But does she? Ah, said Rorty mysteriously, she has a great imagination. End of section 13